Red flag after red flag, but no one said a thing. The lead starts right now. Hit lists and a fascination with mass murders. Today, new details emerging on the Dayton gunman. New details coming from his ex-girlfriend who says he made her watch video from a mass shooting on their first date. This Democrat says it's too late for President Trump to not be a white nationalist. But what would a President Pete Buttigieg do to prevent massacres like El Paso or Dayton? Buttigieg will join me live with his new plan. Plus, pushback from Democrats in grieving communities over the president's plan to come to El Paso and Dayton. Might those visits actually cause more pain than comfort? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the national lead. President Trump now planning to visit the communities where two men committed horrific acts of gun violence and carnage, killing at least 31 innocent people. The president will go to both El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio tomorrow. In El Paso right now, the alleged domestic terrorist is talking to police, telling them he got lost when he first arrived in the city after having driven for 11 hours from the Dallas area to begin his racist, murderous rampage. In Dayton, where the shooter was killed by police early Sunday morning, a picture of the murderer who killed his own sister and eight others is emerging as more details come from his social media accounts and from people who knew him. The Twitter account believed to be his suggests that he had a longtime interest in violence. He described himself as a metalhead and a leftist. Let's go now to Dayton, Ohio, where officials are holding a press conference. Of the evolving mindset of the assailant, The materials reviewed thus far reveal that the individual had a history of obsession with violent ideations to include mass shootings and had expressed a desire to commit a mass shooting. Subsequent material has revealed an orientation toward violent ideologies which elevate this case to one of federal interest. Thus, the FBI will be taking this central role in certain aspects of this case while the Dayton Police Department continues to focus on the homicide investigation. So I now ask Agent Wickerham to provide more information about this shift in investigative focus. However, I will clarify that the information provided will be very limited and not likely to be expanded upon uh, what is already being shared. Agent. So uh, thank you, Mayor. Uh, Thank you, Chief. My name is Todd Wickerham. I'm the special agent in charge for the FBI's Cincinnati field office. So the Dayton police and the FBI have a long history of working together side by side in this community, including very, very important joint terrorism task force assignments that Dayton police officers have, as well as our Safe Streets task force. So working together is nothing new for us. And FBI agents showed up in the early morning hours in the Oregon District after this horrific mass attack. So our investigation with Dayton Police is ongoing. We have not made any final investigative conclusions into the motive of the shooter or if he was assisted by any other people in this attack. However, we have uncovered evidence throughout the course of our investigation that the shooter was exploring violent ideologies. And based upon this evidence, we're initiating an FBI investigation side by side with the Dayton Police homicide investigation to make sure we get to the bottom and we explore everything and we try to understand the best we can why uh, this horrific attack happened. So as we continue to conduct this investigation, we are striving to do three things. 
what to figure out three things. What, if any ideology, influenced the attacker to conduct this attack? Who, if anyone, helped him or had any advance knowledge of his intentions to conduct this attack? And why he committed this specific act of violence? One piece of evidence does not necessarily constitute a motive, hence the need for a thorough, methodical investigation. The case is ongoing, so we cannot provide any detailed information into our investigative activities at this time. It is absolutely critical that we do this investigation the right way. This community and our country deserves an answer as to why this happened. So we ask anybody with additional information regarding this investigation to provide that information to the FBI tip line. It's a tip line that's available 24-7 for somebody to give information. That tip line is 1-800-CALL-FBI. If you call there and ask to give information about the Dayton shooting, uh, somebody will take that information and provide it both to the Dayton Police Department and to the FBI. There's another outlet in which people can provide any type of digital evidence that they may have collected, whether on that night or any social media evidence that they may feel is relevant to why this attack happened. And that can be provided at www.fbi.gov, G-O-V, backslash Dayton shooting. And I also want to thank all the organizations in this community that have stepped up to help the grieving process and the healing process begin here in Dayton. I'll take a couple questions. Hey, can you explain the violent ideology? What violent ideology is it that you're interested in? So I'm not going to get into specifics as to what we found because we're so early in this investigation. There is so much more material to go through and evidence to obtain in this investigation. But uh, we have found very specific violent ideologies that the shooter um, we know followed and was interested in. So that is. Uh, given us enough information to open up an FBI investigation to make sure we have every single tool, every investigative capability to figure out why this happened and to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. To be clear, there's a predicate for a federal investigation. That would be something having to do with either politics, religion, race, that sort of thing, right? So uh, anybody that uh, wants to, uh, to do violence, that is part of uh, what has to be shown to investigate a federal investigation of this type. And so, yeah, so we have found very specific. One thing I'll point out, that we have not found any indication that it's a racial motivation. That is not uh, the, any, we have not found that anything that indicates that it's a racial motivation at this time. I'm not, you know, again, we have a lot to go through. So, um, but uh, different violent ideologies um, uh, will cause an uh, investigation to be initiated, and we have found evidence of a violent ideology. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to get into the specifics. Did you discover this off his computer? Um, we did not discover it off his computer. We're still going through lots of digital evidence, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where we found this because we still have a lot more to go through. Uh, we don't. We do not have that information at this time. We don't know. Can you define what a violent ideology? I mean, just in general terms, what do you mean by violent? This means a pre-existing ideology that exists that he subscribes to, or what does it mean? So what we what we saw in this is uh, this individual, the shooter, uh, the attacker in this case, um, very specifically seeking out um, information that uh, promotes violence. How far back in his past are you going? Reports of a hit list in high school. Or we are going back uh, as far as we need to, to find, uh, try to find out why he did this and also if anybody else knew about this or was involved with this. Was that you think he was planning this event or that he 
was planning to do a different type of event, or, or how premeditated was this event? Uh, we don't know it at this time. I don't have that information uh, at this time. I'm not going to get any more specifics about what we do or what we do not know. Did the events in El Paso affect the timeline of this at all? Uh, we have not seen any evidence that uh, the events in El Paso influenced him at this point. Again, we have lots of evidence to go through. Did you have any prior to this incident? Final question. No, we have no evidence that the, F the shooter was on the FBI's radar prior to this event. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Special Agent. Uh, next, I'm going to invite uh, Assistant Chief Matt Carper to the podium to discuss the President of the United States' visit tomorrow. <coughs> Thank you, Mayor. I know there's been a, a lot of interest in, um, in a potential visit from uh, the, the President into the Miami Valley area tomorrow. Uh, we don't have the specifics yet. As soon as we can get uh, more um, additional information as it unfolds, we'll release what we're able to release to the public. Uh, I know any closures uh, or inconveniences, interruptions would be minimal, so we do understand that. So we'll uh, share more information as it becomes available and as we're able to. That's all I'm able to offer right now. Will the families be meeting with the president privately? I'm sorry? Will the families of the victims be meeting with the president privately? I'll be able to uh, give you more information as uh, as the details are confirmed. What about protests? Thank you. Any word of any protest planned? I'm not aware of any, uh, any organized protests tomorrow. Can you talk about manpower? Uh, is there going to be extra police on the scene at, at the routes? What's that going to look like? With, uh, with any uh, presidential visit or motorcade, um, going back uh, decades, uh, that is the case. Sir, at the White House today, Kellyanne Conway suggested that the Secret Service had communicated to the President that both Dayton and El Paso are safe and ready for the President's visit. Would you agree with that characterization, that assessment? Is Dayton ready at this moment? We are always ready for uh, any kind of dignitary protection assignment. Uh, like I said, going back decades, we've provided those. and. Uh, and sometimes multiple occasions per year. So yes. Given the circumstance that happened here. That is correct. We are ready. Can I ask Thank one you. more question of the agent? Just, just one more. You said that he wasn't influenced by events in El Paso, correct? I didn't say that. No, I said we don't have not developed any evidence at this point that says that he's influenced by El Paso. Any evidence developed that he was influenced by other events? We've had several recently. Uh, we still have a lot of evidence to go through, so uh, I'm not going to say anything else about that. As far as the shooter's history with this hit list you were hearing about, is that something we started to look into, whether he's been he was disciplined at any point, whether that went to the juvenile courts at all, anything like that? I think we've discussed everything we're going to discuss about the investigation, uh, so are there any other questions? I wonder about the chief's the homicide investigation. Yeah. As you continue to look into that gun and the ammunition, have you found any evidence that there was any violation of current gun laws by the shooter? No, we have not. Could you speak to the podium? Yeah, they want to get that on. It'll be pretty easy. No, we have not. So. Any new information leading up to why they may split up the brother and the sister? I, I don't know that that's clear. I mean, we just, we don't have any specific information to really understand that at this time. We just know what happened. Um, what is your take on, on the governor's proposal uh, that he laid out today, 17-point plan? You know, actually, I've been a little too busy to read the governor's proposal, so until I have a chance to, to read it and evaluate it, uh, I really can't comment. So. 
Eric, can you reiterate what you said the morning about the visit tomorrow from the president coming in and what people should do? We, well, you were you were all there, so I um, I, I don't need to I don't want to uh, keep on going, but you know I don't know what you're really asking, frankly, actually. Uh, welcoming the mayor. Oh yeah, as, yeah, I will welcome him in the official capacity as mayor mm -hmm. since he is in the office of the president. Chief, the search warrant in the house, um, did they find any other guns or what kind of evidence was recovered from We're, we're not going to get any of the evidence that was seized in that search warrant. I mean, that's all part of the investigation, and we haven't a chance to even evaluate some of it yet at this point. So, Any update on the person who was driving in the car with them, uh, brothers? So we're done talking about the investigation. So I think we're done with questions today. We appreciate, and um, I'll see some of you at National Night Out. Thank you. You've been listening to the FBI and Dayton, Ohio, Mayor Nan Whaley and local officials giving an update on the Dayton, Dayton shooting. Uh, let's discuss this with my law enforcement experts. And, and Phil, um, let, me, let me bring you in. You're a former FBI official. Um, what do you make of this case being elevated to a federal level? A pretty significant step. If you looked at this a day or two ago, you would have said, we don't understand motivation. That could be across the spectrum. The guy had a problem at work. He had a problem at home. He had a problem with a romantic relationship. The fact that the FBI is being brought in as a as the lead in the investigation says, as we heard today, that they have information about motive. The motive of race was taken off the table. There's still a lot of motives about connections to ideologies that would be on the table. For example, anti-government organizations are a lot of people in this country who don't believe the U.S. government should have sovereignty over their lives. Leftist Antifa uh, uh, motivations that would might might lead people to say an act of violence against the government is appropriate. So the fact that the that the feds are brought in and that the locals are saying the feds are key gives us key, a key indication of a big step forward in saying there's a motivation beyond something that's purely personal. And Anthony, uh, let me bring you in. Um, the FBI uh, special agent Todd uh, Wickerham uh, said that the, the most prevalent thing that they've been able to discern in the Dayton, Ohio shooter is evidence of a violent ideology. Uh, but as of now, no specific evidence of the shooting being motivated by, by racism or, or by politics. That doesn't mean that they won't find that. But the focus, of course, is, is his, the shooter's obsession uh, with violence. What, what might this all mean, you think? Yeah, I think, you know, it's clear there are there's still a lot of unknowns, you know, com comparatively to, to the El Paso uh, 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 scene, you know, where we have a living subject who is answering questions uh, with law enforcement. He here in Ohio, we do not. And, and it remains a lot of questions. I thought the special agent in charge of the FBI uh, uh, put it very well. You know, what, what, what were the motives of the, of the actor? Uh, who helped him, if anybody? And, and why did he do this? I also think it's significant that the FBI is taking the investigation because it allows for for a uh, more federal uh, charging instrument uh, where he can be charged with uh, more significant crimes uh, in this case. And, and Phil, um, let's talk about the red flags raised about this uh, gunman. Uh, because apparently as far back as high school, uh, he got in trouble with teachers and the administration in school for, for doing something that suggests a proclivity to violence, coming up with a hit list of people at school he wanted to kill. But after somebody like that gets in trouble with the school, does that just disappear? Nobody else finds out about it? The police don't find out about it? Gun sellers don't find out about it? I think there's two separate conversations to have. One conversation is about counseling. For example, there are people outside the law enforcement 
community who are brought in to talk to the kid. The more significant conversation in my world of intelligence and law enforcement is simple. You have thousands, more than 10,000 police departments across the country. If they do not have political and legal cover to go in and say there's evidence, not, not that the individual committed an act of crime, but red flag evidence according to a law that we don't have today, if we don't have that, how do you take away somebody's gun? Because the immediate response of that person's gonna go get a lawyer saying, you don't have the right to take my gun. I have the right to write whatever I want about hate. That's not against the law. Governor DeWine in Ohio is moving in the right direction. Until you get the legislation that he's proposing, you don't have the opportunity in law enforcement to take somebody's weapon away. These red flag laws would allow families to petition a court uh, to temporarily take guns away from an individual if he is believed to be a threat to himself or others. I want to go to CNN's Randy Kay. She's in Dayton, Ohio. And, and Randy, officials are now saying they uncovered this evidence of a violent ideology, but they don't have a motive yet. Absolutely, Jake. And there's new information, and you mentioned these red flags. Many of the people here in Dayton say they don't need a presidential visit. They want answers as to how this could have happened in their community. Some 41 shots were fired in under 30 seconds as panicked patrons ran for their lives. Two new surveillance videos show the chaotic scene in Dayton, Ohio, as a 24-year-old gunman unleashed terror on crowded streets. Now, former high school classmates say the shooter had a troubling past. Connor had this hit list of people he wanted to harm or kill. He just was an angry person who acted on his actions, and the warning signs were missed. A newly discovered Twitter account believed to belong to the shooter reads, quote, I'm going to hell and I'm not coming back, as part of the biography. It also shows retweets of anti-police and extreme left-wing posts. But unlike El Paso, where the accused terrorist outlined his racist political motivations in an online post, police in Dayton don't know what motivated Sunday's massacre. Came around the corner, heard two shots, pop, pop. Dion Green thought he and his father had been spared until he saw the blood. I see the blood just coming from both sides of his head, and I just lost it. He looked at me, he was breathing, and he just lied there with his eyes open in my arms. So he died in your arms? Yes, in Texas, authorities now say the gunman that shot 22 people dead at this El Paso Walmart claims he stopped there for food. He drove some 11 hours from his home in Allen, Texas, to the border city and targeted Hispanics in his attack. I saw him reloading the gun. Maribel Latin was shot twice. He shot eight more bullets. I counted them because I said one of these is going to be mine. Police also telling CNN today the 21-year-old gunman was unarmed when he drove up to a motorcycle officer near the Walmart, put his hands up, and surrendered. And one more note about that Dayton man who you saw in that story whose father died in his arms. He believes that he spoke to the suspect's sister who was also killed in that shooting. She was right nearby. He told us that she said to him, I've been shot. Please call 911. He told us he didn't realize who it was, Jake, until police questioned him about the woman nearby. And then he saw her picture in the news. Uh, Randy Kay, thank you so much. In the wake of these two horrific shootings, Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg today, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, unveiled a new gun control plan he says will combat domestic terrorism and includes an additional $1 billion in funding for the FBI as well as state and local police. It includes a plan to work with social media companies to try to identify hateful messages shared online and stop them from spreading. 
plus banning some types of semi-automatic weapons, closing loopholes so more gun sales require background checks, and creating a nationwide gun licensing system. And Mayor Pete Buttigieg joins me now live. And Mayor Buttigieg, thanks so much for joining us. I want to ask you about the specifics of your plan in a moment, but, but I want to know, after the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, not to mention in Las Vegas or Orlando, there are always pushes for new gun control restrictions. Congress doesn't do anything ultimately. How does a President Buttigieg get it done? Well, you begin with the fact that America wants this to get done. How much longer can something go against the will of the American people before we have a breakthrough? That's why my plan focuses on action, political action, policy action, civic action. Uh, Right now, it doesn't seem like there's been much of a penalty to to be paid, for example, uh, for Mitch McConnell's decision to prevent the universal background check legislation that passed the House. Something, by the way, which enjoys support from the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats across this country. There's not much of a penalty for the Senate blocking that. That's got to change. And it's why one of the actions we propose uh, that uh, you don't have to be president to do, any one of us can do, is to get a hold of your senator. It's recess. They're at home. They're going to events in their home states. I think they should be back in Washington on an emergency basis dealing with this. But until they are, uh, we're urging everybody to reach out, call their senator, find their senator, and get something done about this. Look, we know that there are a number of measures that can help save lives. We also know that this is not only a matter of gun safety, but of countering violent extremism here at home. Uh, The decision that this administration made to reduce funding and cancel programs for dealing with violent extremism is the wrong direction. Time to turn that around before we're dealing with another attack like this in the future. So, Mr. Mayor, one of your proposals is to end the Senate filibuster so it'll be easier to pass uh, gun restrictions. That would make it so only a simple majority of senators have to support a policy for it to pass as opposed to the threshold of 60 votes now. That theoretically would have allowed Republicans to repeal the Affordable Care Act back in 2017. Are you sure this is the best way forward? Look, uh, if the filibuster, if it weren't for the filibuster, we would have a lot of measures right now. Remember, you, you referenced Sandy Hook, and a lot of us thought, you know, if children can be murdered at that level uh, in our country, surely that will be the last straw. And legislation uh, moved and uh, was filibustered. Uh, it stopped dead in the Senate. Uh, we can't go on accepting this. Uh, yes, it, it uh, creates all kinds of uh, new challenges politically, but uh, when the will of the American people can be defeated so easily on the floor of the Senate, uh, it is time for a change. And it's clear that the filibuster, which has a complicated and rather dark history to begin with, has outlived its usefulness to the American people. Yeah, but you didn't acknowledge my point, which is, okay, so in Sandy Hook, after Sandy Hook, that would have been passed, but then the Republicans would have taken over the Senate, uh, and then it would have been completely undone. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. And then they would have been, yeah, and in my view, if that had happened, they would have lost power in 2018. Uh, look, we can do a lot of counterfactuals, but uh, you know, I think it's, it's meaningful that, uh, that the ACA is intact even after uh, a lot of what we've been through. Now, of course, the administration is trying to dismantle it. Look, the point is, if we're asking ourselves this question, of how is it that this uh, we say never again and it always happens. Uh, the indication is that we've got to make structural change. You can't go on doing the same thing and expect a better result. Obviously, there are structural problems in our politics. When you've got an NRA that no longer even speaks for the majority of gun owners and yet is able to get its way in Washington against the will of the American people, uh, when you have these things that, that America expects and Washington can't deliver, something is wrong in the very structure of the way decisions are made in Washington. That's what we've got to change, and the filibuster is part of that. Uh, Mr. Mayor, part of your your plan is a ban on what are called assault weapons. They're 
certain types of semi-automatic weapons. What does that ban look like in your administration? Does it stop at outlawing sales? Does it include a, a mandatory uh, assault weapon buyback? Will you require those who own these weapons to, to turn them into the government? W- what happens? My focus is on stopping sales of new ones. Look, uh, there are some estimates that there will be 130 million more guns on the street by 2030, if nothing changes, some of which will be these assault or military-style weapons, things like uh, what I carried around when I was in Afghanistan that just have no business on American streets or anywhere near schools uh, in, in a country at, at peace. Uh, so let's start by banning new sales of these weapons. Then we can figure out other mechanisms to reduce the number that are circulating out there and, above all, stop them from falling into the wrong hands, which is why things like not only universal background check but uh, disarming hate uh, through uh, a red flag law that covers hate crime uh, and things like closing the boyfriend loophole and the Charleston loophole are so important as some of these secondhand weapons do continue to circulate in our country. Will it stop every problem, every crime? No, but it will save lives. And we have a moral responsibility to do everything we can to save the thousands of lives that are at stake right now. All right, South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for your time, sir. Good luck to you on the campaign trail. Thanks for having me on. Bipartisan gun legislation does not have to be a fantasy in Washington. Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania co-wrote a bill on background checks. But will that move forward? Senator Toomey will join me next. Stay with us. In our politics lead, as President Trump prepares to visit El Paso and Dayton tomorrow, Democrats back in Washington, D.C., are continuing to criticize Republicans for blocking gun control legislation, some of which enjoys bipartisan support. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, this time the person Democrats are focused on is not just President Trump. Amid the political fallout over how to prevent mass shootings, President Trump is headed to the scenes of the last two. Tomorrow... The president and the first lady will travel to Dayton and El Paso. But not everyone will be happy to see him. This is the most racist president we've had since perhaps Andrew Johnson. Trump is facing major pushback from some current and local officials in El Paso and Dayton, including two Democratic presidential candidates urging him not to come. And he is responsible for the hatred and the violence that we're seeing right now. I think he's a polarizing figure, I think especially uh, in El Paso. El Paso's Republican mayor, D. Margo, says he's received phone calls and emails from angry Texans, but will welcome Trump over their objections. I don't know how we deal with evil. I don't have a textbook for dealing with evil other than the Bible. I'm sorry. I, I, we're going to go through this. But, he, but uh, the president is coming out. Dayton's Democratic mayor, Nan Whaley, says she will also welcome the president as well as anyone protesting his visit. He's made this bet and he's got a lie in it, you know. Uh, He hasn't, you know, um, his rhetoric has been painful for many in our community. uh, And I think that people should stand up and say they're not happy if they're not happy that he's coming. Today, White House officials are firing back at former President Barack Obama after he issued a statement calling on the country to reject language from leaders that feeds a climate of fear and hatred. Nobody blames him for Newtown, Connecticut. This amid growing calls in Washington for action on gun control. It's a piece of paper, but it's a piece of paper that could save lives. Democrats want Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to bring back lawmakers from their five-week summer recess for a vote on stalled gun legislation. Mitch McConnell needs to get off his ass and do something. 
That sentiment heard outside McConnell's Kentucky home where protesters gathered Monday night. Despite the inaction, a source close to McConnell says he's serious about considering gun legislation. Now, Jake, we're being told by sources right now that Republican leadership is not considering ending their recess and coming back to Capitol Hill because Mitch McConnell still feels that that universal background checks bill that Democrats have been calling for still does not have the support of the president or most Republicans in the Senate. Instead, they say they want to stay in touch with the White House about potential legislation they could get passed when they do return in the fall. And our sources here at the White House are telling us the president has expressed some openness to expanding those background checks in the last few days. But right now, the question is whether or not that's something he does still support in the coming days or if it's going to be something that he'll back off of in the end. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining me now is Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who yesterday announced a bipartisan proposal for expanding background checks along with Democratic Senator uh, Joe Manchin. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for joining us. So you just heard uh, Caitlin Collins report there, a source telling CNN that the Majority Leader McConnell has no interest in moving that House bill that expands background checks since it lacks support from the president and sufficient uh, Republicans in the Senate. How is the Manchin-Toomey, or should I say Toomey-Manchin bill on expanding background checks, how is it different from the House version? Well, Jake, uh, one of the main differences is that uh, we're going after commercial gun sales. So we think that there should be a background check for all commercial gun sales, but a private transaction between family members or friends uh, we would not require a background check for those kinds of transactions. The House bill is much broader and it's, it's virtually universal with very few exceptions, is my understanding. You and Senator Manchin uh, were on this show pushing a similar bill uh, on the floor of the Senate back in 2013 after the tragedy of Newtown. Uh, it did not pass. Uh, you and Senator Susan Collins, I believe, are the only Republicans who voted for it back in 2013 who are still in the U.S. Senate. Do you think it can pass now? Do you think you can get more Republicans? Jake, I, I hope we can, and I hope it can pass. Uh, you know, um, it's true, Susan and I are the only two uh, Republican senators remaining who voted for it, but I think that the sentiment has changed somewhat, and maybe it's just the uh, accumulation of pain from all of these horrific experiences. Uh, the president is open to this conversation. I've spoken with him several times in the last 24 hours. I've spoken to Leader McConnell. As usual, Mitch McConnell wants a, an actual outcome, not uh, political grandstanding. And to get an actual outcome, there needs to be bipartisan support in both chambers of Congress. And that's what Joe Manchin and I are focused on. That's what, we dis what I discussed with the president today and yesterday. And that's what I'm hoping we can get to. Did the president say that if your legislation passes the Senate, that he'll sign it? Um, no, he didn't say that. And I didn't ask him that. I think he's still um, asking questions about the substance and how we get there, what other things might be included. For instance, I think there's broad support for red flags legislation. Senator Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I believe intends to bring up uh, such legislation. You know, Jake, this is the legislation that would allow uh, family and law enforcement when they discover somebody who is um, exhibiting dangerous and violent uh, proclivities to bring that to the attention of a court. And if the court agrees, then to 
take the firearms and prevent that person from buying other firearms. That has broad support. I think that's likely to move out of judiciary and be able to pass on the full Senate floor. I also think my bill with Chris Coons, which would require the FBI to notify states when someone attempts to buy a firearm who is not legally entitled to by virtue of past criminal record, that's legislation that can pass. And my hope is that we can include in that broadening the background checks, because I think we should have background checks for commercial sales. Why do you think so many of your Republican Senate colleagues are so reluctant to support even a modest measure like this, who is, you know, that is supported by two people who, before you supported uh, this bill in 2013, you and Senator Manchin enjoyed, I think you both had A's from the NRA. Is it because they're afraid? Yeah, we did. Uh, are, sure. Is it because you're afraid of losing, not you, but is, are they afraid of losing an election? Are they afraid of the heat? Like, you and Manchin have shown you can support something like this and get reelected. <clears throat> What's holding them back? Yeah, um, yes, you can get reelected. There's a lot of heat, I assure you, uh, as well. Uh, there are a lot of folks who are concerned about a slippery slope, um, you know, whereby first it's extending background checks and later maybe something else that. So for me, as a Second Amendment supporter, a gun owner, someone who believes in the Second Amendment, I don't think a background check is an infringement on the Second Amendment rights of a law-abiding citizen. I don't think it is. I wouldn't support legislation that does infringe on that right because I think it's an important constitutional right. Some of my colleagues, I think, might be concerned that there's a slippery slope argument. I don't agree with that. Uh, but, you know, we haven't had a vote in a number of years, and I'm hoping that um, we'll be able to persuade some folks. There are a lot of new senators who weren't here the last time we voted on Manchin-Toomey. So um, we're going we're gonna to have another chance, I think, uh, and I hope soon. All right. Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey, thank you so much. They're always good to see you. Please come back as this battle heats up. We want to hear from you and Senator Manchin. Thanks for having me. New details just emerged about what else Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell does not plan to do about gun legislation. Stay with us. In our politics lead, two communities grappling with grief and now also grappling with how to receive President Trump tomorrow amid his past divisive rhetoric. Dayton, Ohio, Mayor Nan Whaley says while she will meet with President Trump, members of her city may not be as warm. Protests are expected. Let's chat about this. Jen Psaki, uh, both the mayor of Dayton and the mayor of El Paso. Mayor of El Paso is a Republican mayor of Dayton, uh, Democrat, uh, going to meet with President Trump. Um, these types of meetings are usually about healing. Uh, President Trump in the past has shown that he is capable of it. He's able to do it. Uh, but people in El Paso in particular uh, seem very upset. Do you think it's possible that these trips can be what, you know, the nation needs right now? There's no evidence to suggest that. Uh, and I say that because uh, having been a part of a number of these trips in the past, um, you know, typically what you do is you reach out to the mayor and you say what you say to the mayor, what do you need? Um, and the mayors of countries of cities around the country, they're like Mama Grizzlies or Papa Grizzlies. You know, they're worried about their communities. That's what they're most focused on. When any president comes in, it takes up a lot of resources and time and energy. So they factor that in. But President Trump hasn't really exhibited an ability to publicly heal or publicly bring people together. The mayors are thinking about that. And never, in, in addition to the fact that some of his rhetoric seems to have possibly led to one of these, the motivation of one of these shooters, or, or that seems to be what they're reporting suggesting. So they're focused on their communities and what they're hearing from their communities. A lot of these conversations are private. 
they're emotional, and they're looking at, is this person going to make people feel better or not? It's a very human decision that these mayors are making. And not only that, and when it comes to El Paso in particular, the president hasn't really said nice things about it. He said it was crime-riddled when he went there initially. It's not. It's, it was it's very safe. Some of his rhetoric toward, uh, in part because of Beto O'Rourke and, and to the Latino community there. So it's not only the president's rhetoric writ large. It's how he's actually spoken about El Paso that is problematic. What are you hoping for tomorrow, Patrick? I'm hoping that the people of El Paso and Dayton have an opportunity to hear from the president, speak to the president. If they are frustrated with President Trump, Jake, they have the opportunity to say that. If there are protests, there are protests. I think right now, though, the official capacity of the president is much been shared by the mayor of El Paso, which is um, I'm not necessarily in agreement with him on a lot of issues. He's been very public about that. But I will welcome him in my official capacity as mayor, and I will welcome him as president. I think we're going to be very, very careful here. The politics on this are terrible, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. But right now, while we look at legislation, while we look at fixing this problem, we damn well better look at helping the nation to heal. Whether you like Donald Trump or you don't like him, he's the president of the United States. He should be accepted, and he should hear what people have to say. The problem I have with this is that it's not about the president. It's always about the president himself. He thinks that. But when these communities are reeling, they're not worried about Donald Trump's feelings or what's appropriate as president. They're worried about their communities. And, you know, I think that's what they're looking at. They're looking at his rhetoric and how he's approached these issues. And they're thinking, how will people digest and receive this here? It's but, not but, about his agenda or what's appropriate but, but, for him as president. But you're supposing, Jen, that the president doesn't care about these communities. The political rhetoric aside, and Donald Trump has had plenty of it, about El Paso and other crime-infested cities. We've heard about one not far from here recently. This is not crime-infested, the, by the way. But I'm just saying, that was the president's rhetoric. Right. The bottom line is, I think he should have an opportunity to go, see for himself, and hear for himself. Well, what are you expecting tomorrow in El Paso? Because obviously there's that large Latino community there. Mm-hmm. Many members of the Latino community, as I don't need to tell you, uh, feel demonized by President Trump ever since he came down that escalator in 2015. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure how Trump is going to be received. I mean, we do know that El Paso... Um, is, as Jackie said, a very safe city. It's a border city with Juarez. I've been there multiple times. I've been across into Juarez. Um, And so the the question really is, and a lot of Latino leaders are very frustrated, ones on the ground, like Veronica Escobar, who represents that district, as well as others across other states. Um, And they're very concerned. And they want to, they are expecting to, in the next day or so, to be calling on Trump to try to suspend uh, the deportations and to... Uh, to take more action in his words and saying that he is not going to be talking this way about Mexican immigrants or immigrants from South America. Using the word invasion. Using the word invasion, trying to dehumanize immigrants in a way that he has in the past. And we have some breaking news right now. Uh, We just got the first reaction from the family of the accused El Paso domestic terrorist who killed 22 people. The family released a statement saying in part, quote, Patrick's actions were apparently influenced and informed by people we do not know and from ideas and beliefs that we do not accept or condone in any way. He was raised in a family that taught love, kindness, respect, and tolerance, rejecting all forms of racism, prejudice, hatred, and violence. There will never be a moment for the rest of our lives when we will forget each and every victim of this senseless tragedy, unquote. And this is, this is something that you hear after a lot of these events, uh, is that family members are shocked to discover that this murderous person, often a racist, not always, but often a racist, was racist. Uh, and it, it's, um, it's odd to me, I think. 
And, you know, this is we've I think that the fact that it's become part of this routine that we are all forced to go through now that you're waiting for. Oh, when is the family of the, the accused killer going to come out with their statement? Okay, where's the others? The fact that we have to go through this routine over and over again, I think, is why you, you are seeing some members of Congress come, come uh, Republican members of Congress, say enough is enough. I'm going to change my stance on it. We saw it with Congressman Mike Turner today. The Dayton congressman say that you know he thinks that maybe some military-style assault um, weapons shouldn't be in the hands of civilians. Perhaps more background checks, red flag laws. I think that's it's not obviously a uh, we haven't seen a turning point yet in terms of you know many Republican members of Congress. But there, I, I, I think, particularly in the suburbs, you're seeing people get sick of this macabre routine that we are forced to go through every couple months. That statement, I think, speaks to the very subtle way that racism permeates you know, through society, which is that you may not think that someone you know is racist, but they may use certain terms or phrases that are very subtle and that send signals. And that's also the question about the language that Trump has used himself, which is invasion, which is infestation, uh, not just about Latinos, but also about black lawmakers in the communities that they represent and how uh, nefarious that language like that can be. Uh, Okay, everyone, thanks so much. Uh, The ex-girlfriend of the Dayton killer just spoke with CNN. You're going to hear from her next. Stay with us. Breaking news, we're now hearing from someone who says she knew the Dayton killer well. As the FBI now says, there is hard evidence that he had a real interest, obsession even, in violent ideologies. I want to go now to CNN's Drew Griffin, who's in Dayton, Ohio. And Drew, you just spoke with the gunman's ex-girlfriend moments ago. What did she have to say? Uh, Dahlia Johnson, 24 years old, she dated Connor Betts from January until May, broke off that relationship this May because of a stalking incident that she recalled on another ex-girlfriend's of the shooters. Uh, She told me that uh, Connor had shared with her suicidal thoughts, Jake, that he admitted putting a gun in his mouth in the past and on their very first date shared with her video of a mass shooting. He was interested in what makes terrible people do terrible things. Mass shooting? Yeah. And he, he, uh, he knew that they were bad and he knew that they were horrific. And he, he wanted to know what led a person to do those things. Jake, despite all that, she considered them yellow flags, not red flags, wishes now that she had got him the mental health that he says he told her he was looking for but did not get. The FBI has interviewed Adelia Johnson. She says they asked her all about the relationship, also about his music and about his video game use. Jake. All right, Drew Griffin in Dayton, Ohio. Thanks so much. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke left the campaign trail to go back to his hometown and mourn with his community. His visceral, visceral responses to President Trump and to reporters have gone viral, putting the 2020 hopeful back in the spotlight, as CNN's Ryan Noble Nobles reports. Beto O'Rourke out of the public eye today for the first time since learning of the mass shooting in his hometown. Next, Beto O'Rourke. Just minutes before taking the stage at a candidate forum in Las Vegas. The gravity of the moment appearing to sink in as he addressed the crowd. Keep that on the battlefield. Do not bring it into our communities. It would be the first hint into the politician's raw reaction to the tragedy. A decision to not hold back. His public responses since that moment have been a raw mix of sadness, offering comfort, and most prominently, anger, specifically directed at President Trump. 
Let's be very clear about what is causing this and who the president is. He is an open, avowed racist. In the days since the shooting, the former city councilman, congressman, and now presidential candidate has visited victims in hospitals, encouraged the community to give blood, and channeled the community's outrage through his visible platform. At times, his frustration boiling over. He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like members of the press, what the Hold on a second. And that approach has led to attacks from the Trump administration. Beta work from the Vanity Fair magazine cover to the Vanity Project candidacy out there screaming and cursing about President Trump. That doesn't heal a single soul. That doesn't help prevent another mass shooting. They're raising their profile. But O'Rourke is making it clear he stands by what he says. Since launching his presidential campaign, O'Rourke has struggled to recapture the energy surrounding his 2018 Senate run consistently down in the polls since and falling behind in the money race. And as of today, his campaign has no clear indication of what comes next. And while he's not interested in talking about the campaign, it is clear O'Rourke has no plans to back down from this fight. We have to show that that is the exception, not the rule, but that will become the new normal if we allow it to be. If we don't stand up, And O'Rourke took a step back from that public platform today, instead meeting behind the scenes with victims and families of the tragedy here in El Paso. Jake, there is no indication when he plans to return to the campaign trail. All right, Ryan Nobles in El Paso for us. Thank you so much. Today we're learning more about the 31 men and women, parents and children killed in these two horrific mass shootings over the weekend. For instance, 36-year-old Beatrice Warren Curtis, she was killed in the Dayton attack, a co-worker tells CNN that Beatrice was bright and vibrant and fondly recalled the birthday parties and girls' nights that they shared. She also says Beatrice was very close to her mother and had nieces and nephews who adored her. We also learned about 15-year-old Javier Rodriguez. He was the youngest victim killed in the El Paso shooting. During a tearful vigil last night, his friends and classmates remembered Javier as a one-of-a-kind person, someone who brightened everyone else's day. We also learned about 63-year-old David Johnson. He died, he was killed, protecting his wife and their nine-year-old granddaughter during the El Paso Walmart slaughter. His daughters tell CNN they want everyone to know that he died a hero. My mom is still here, and if it wasn't for him, she'll, his legacy will be forever, forever with us. And, I want, he was just a hero. He is indeed. His daughters say that one of Dave's favorite things to do was to set up science experiments in his kitchen and make potions with his grandchildren. That's just three. 28 other innocent lives were stolen in those two tragedies, and our hearts are with their families and their friends. May their memories be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.